Our readings today are from Psalm 22, verses 25 through 31, and Matthew 28, verses 11 through 20. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May their hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Matthew 28. Starting in verse 11, the report of the guard. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears... We will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And to this and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. In today's reading, I want to talk about six items. First is the promised end that we heard about in the Psalms. The Psalms are songs which the Israelites would sing at the temple, uh, sorry, at the tabernacle of David. David set up, David saw by the Spirit that God wished to be worshipped with song, with instruments, with music, and God had established that David would proclaim the truth and these songs would be written down and they would be passed throughout the centuries to his people to give them an understanding not only of who they are, who God is as their creator and their redeemer out of Egypt, but also their king and the one who decides their fate, their future. And so this psalm is not just talking about something that should be expected in the life of Israel as a nation state at the time of David, but rather it itself is a prophecy. We've, we often talk about the law and the prophets. One of the things we fail to understand is that the psalms are part of the prophets. 
the Psalms have prophecy, and to that end, I want to see what our Psalm talks about, uh, the end to where this is going. And where it's going shapes how you live today. If you've ever been through driving school, you may have been taught to not focus on the borders right and left of your car, but rather to look at your look down the road, put your eyes on the horizon, and drive straight by looking to where you're going. And so where you are looking will cause it'll cause you to go in that direction. So it, it very much matters what we do with this passage of scripture, what it says about the coming end. Many Christians believe that darkness should triumph continually, and that is not what the scriptures teach at all. Therefore, we must understand what we're supposed to be doing in light of where we're going. So there is a promised end. It is known. It's easy to know. I want to look at this false justification of doubt, what we've been focusing during our time in Easter. Now here at the fifth week of Easter, we've been looking at how doubt is being attacked in all of these gospel presentations, all of these resurrection accounts. And we here in this passage see that doubt has to be justified, though it has to be justified with a false justification. And so the Jews invent a reason in their minds for the disposition of doubt in their hearts. I want to look at that and see how it is that we can undo that. I want to look at the authority that Jesus says that he has, and that authority will be contrasted with everyone else's authority. We're going to look at it in those terms. We're going to look at what baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit means. It, uh, just a little precursor. It, it doesn't mean it's not a formula. And it doesn't mean that if you only baptize someone and don't say those words, then it wasn't a valid baptism. That's not the point of what Jesus is saying here. I want to look at how Jesus teaches that they are to observe everything that he commanded them. And that observation is important to understand. And then finally, I want to look at the promise of presence, that Jesus does promise to be with you. And that, that will mightily shape how you go about your mission. So with that being said, the Psalms here give us a mighty view of the end of the age, that is the end of the ages, that it, at the end of time or the end of history as we know it, before the second coming, there is a guaranteed event that will take place. Um, and we know that from a, just a few logical reasonings of this Psalm. The eschatology that you have, no matter what you call it, whether you call it pre, post, a, trib, millennial, whatever you want to name it, it has to harmonize with this psalm. If this psalm has no place in your eschatology, the psalm must not change, your eschatology must change. And by eschatology, I mean what you think of the coming future, where this is going. The promise to Abraham was, God, God said to Abraham, Abraham, I will make you a mighty nation. That happened. We know that happened. He made Israel. He extracted Israel out of the side of Egypt, pulled her out, ripped her out. The Exodus says that he carried them up on eagle's wings. And so he has done that. But the promise to Abraham also says that through Abraham's seed, not seeds, not nation, not through the people, but through the seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that word all is very important in today's message. It shows up two times here and what Jesus says about his authority. Everything that is included in all is 100%. We talked about Venn diagrams last, last week. There is nothing outside the circle in this context. All the families mean all the families on the earth. 
Every single family will be blessed. And that is promised to Abraham. Now, how that works, I'm not fully sure, but it has to harmonize with a plain understanding of Scripture. Here in Psalm 22, 27 through 28, David is again prophesying. The same prophecy that God gave to Abraham, the same promise, is reiterated. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. What does, it, what, it, what does it mean for a family to remember? Well, it means that families came from somewhere, and through the sin which was passed through Adam, and also the scattering of the rebellion of Babylon, or of ba- Babel, as is popularly known, they were sent off into the world. And God caused them to spread throughout the world and to multiply and and to grow. And here, this prophecy is that the gospel will chase down the nations who have been running away from Yahweh. It will chase them down. And so all the ends of the earth shall remember. And then it says explicitly, all the families of the nations. This is talking about families of generations, families of genera, families of types. This word nation is both genus, like as in an animal kingdom or a plant kingdom, but it's also nation or family. And so here, the word families of the nations is trying to be very explicit. It's trying to say every single family in every single nation. Now, that is a mighty understanding of where the gospel is going, but I don't believe that I can come up with any other understanding where this is just kind of explained away. I don't think I can do it. The reason why this will happen is because for kingship belongs to the Lord. And we remember whenever we see capital L-O-R-D, it's the tetragrammaton, the four letters which describe the name Yahweh, And so here, authority belongs to the Lord, and we're going to see here Jesus in his declaration of the Great Commission, declaring himself to be Yahweh. We're going to see that. And he rules over the nation. So the continual call to Israel over and over again in the scriptures, understanding this passage rightly, is that Israel is called by the prophets to remember. And here, the prophet in this psalm says that all of the ends of the earth will remember. That means they will have heard the word of the Lord, which is always to remember and to return to Yahweh. They shall indeed remember from whom they derive their being. Paul in Ephesians 3 says that all the families of the earth derive their name from the Father. And what he means by that is that they come from the Father. And so these families, as the psalmist says, are going to remember from whom they derive their being and existence, and they will acknowledge him as their God. So that's where history is going, and you can either war against that or you can get on board with that. And that can only be believed by faith, just like the rest of the gospel. I believe strongly you shouldn't have an eschatology that is more easy to believe than your gospel because they're intimately connected. One leads to the other. And so, therefore, we see with that understanding the call that Jesus gives. Jesus does not give his disciples a call that is disconnected from reality. He doesn't say, try to get 100% on the test and expect them to get a 50. That would be foolish. And so Jesus here, as we understand the Great Commission, is operating in an understanding of the scriptures that includes God's promise to Abraham being fulfilled. God God will be demonstrated as a covenant-fulfilling God.
He has made covenant and he will keep it. He will fulfill it. That's where this is going. The gracious father is going to fulfill his promise to Abraham and this blessing, which is the promised seed and comes through the promised seed will be carried by those who his seed, that is Christ, as Paul explains in Galatians, uh, designates to go on mission. And so this is the way that God will bless all the families of the earth. All of the families of the earth will remember and return to the Lord. So with that being said, we take a brief interim to talk about the, the doubt that shows up here in the life of, of the Jews. Um, it, it's kind of hard to explain, but in this story, it's not explicit in the text, but we understand from history rightly. When Jesus was arrested in the garden, he was not arrested by Roman guards. That's very important to remember. He was not arrested by Roman guards. He was arrested by the temple guard because the Sanhedrin had conspired together with Judas to deliver up the son of God and to, uh, to betray him. And the temple guard comes and arrests Jesus. Likewise, that exact same thing happens. There's a difference between the temple guard and the Roman guard, the Roman soldiers. So, so you got to remember that while we uh, go through this passage. So this Jewish temple guard, they hear about what's going on because they were assigned by the Sanhedrin to be around the tomb, to make sure that things were okay. This was their chief mission, was to deal with Jesus Christ. They wished to eliminate him and to remove his voice, and so they wanted to be very clear. They were even probably given commands to take captive any of his disciples should they show up. But here, at the day of the resurrection, after this has taken place, then the temple guard reports that from afar they saw something take place. The Roman soldiers who were by the tomb, they fell down, and at this point, the temple guard is going to report. The reason we know clearly it's the temple guard is both that there was a different use, different word used between guard and soldier, and then also, you don't report to someone who isn't your master. If you've ever been in a job or a business, you always report to your uh, supervisor. Here, the guard goes and reports to the temple. They report to the Sanhedrin. They don't report to the Romans. And so here, the temple guard are reporting to the Sanhedrin. While they were going, behold, some of the guard, again, that's not the Romans, that's the temple guard, went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. So here, what's happening is these guards who had seen some event that took out a bunch of Roman soldiers, they're going and telling that somebody's moved away this, the stone on the tomb, and we've got to do something about it. And they are get, they're giving their, uh, their superiors some information, and here, these superiors begin to take counsel together. So the Sanhedrin assembles, they get everybody together. We talked last week about how the crucifixion was not a secret thing, but rather it was approved by all spheres of society, that is religious, political, uh, the crowd, uh, even Judas, they all conspire together, and this same thing happens. The Jews get together, they take counsel, and it doesn't record that there was any dissension here. It doesn't re record that anybody said, well, it's not right to violate the law of God. And so they all together coerce these guards, and then they call the Roman soldiers in their presence. It says they had assembled with the elders, and then they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. So they're paying off these Roman soldiers, they're giving a bribe, and they're telling the Roman soldiers that you shouldn't 
tell the truth. You shouldn't say that the stone was moved by an angel, that you were struck down with a, a blinding light, that you saw these events personally, but rather you should lie and you should say that the disciples came and stole him. And so they are not only bearing false witness, they are also giving a bribe, and we understand this to be breaking the law. The law of God, which the Pharisees claim to uphold, says in multiple places, it is wrong to give a bribe, it is bribe, it is wrong to receive a bribe, and it is also collusion and conspiracy to join in with people who are lying and to bear false witness. They're violating the commandments, they're violating the statutes of God, and they're violating the intent of righteousness. And so this conspiracy theory hypothesis that a bunch of disciples came and stole Jesus' body uh, from the tomb is rejected prima facie, which just means on its face. As in, the conspiracy theory that the disciples were doing this was started by a conspiracy of Jews, of Pharisees, of the Sanhedrin, conspiring together with the temple guard and the Romans, also promising to bribe the soldiers. Remember, sin will always multiply. So in the lie that they tell and in the bribe that they give, necessarily, spiritually law speaking, includes another bribe. Look at this. This is amazing. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him. That's, that's hushed talk for we're going to give him a bunch of money too. Why is that? Because if a soldier falls down at his job, they can be executed. If you're on watch and you fall asleep or somehow something goes on and you can't give a, a pure accounting of what took place, that either somebody knocked me out or you know somebody killed all of us and I ran away and I'm, I'm here to get more soldiers and go back and take the garrison again. If you're on watch and you let down the guard, you are put to death. And so here, they're in a great danger. The, the Pharisees, the Sadducees conspire together and say, if the governor gets wind of this and you face some sort of penalty, we'll also pay for you. This is amazing. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And Matthew tells us this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. That is one of the most uh, common rejections of the evidence of the crucifixion, that it was just a conspiracy theory, that the disciples actually stole the body away. And so we have great work to do in claiming and asserting the resurrection. Here, we, we see plainly through Matthew's testimony, as well as the other gospels uh, harmonizing with this account, that the Jews conspired together. They broke the law of God. Not only did they break the law of God in Jesus's trial and crucifixion, but also in covering up the resurrection. So they have to justify the doubt that is in their heart. The doubt that is in the heart must always be kept there by an ally in the mind. Doubt that is in the heart will necessarily produce ways of thinking, ways of looking at the evidence that go along with a sustaining of, of the doubt. That is, you must, you, you wish as a human being to, to understand and to justify your existence, and you will of necessity create reasons for why you doubt. And so doubt must be dealt with. It must be understood as a poison which infects all of your spiritual life, all of your life for that matter. So these Jews are willing to break the law of God for the sake of their own tradition, for upholding their own authority as Jesus uh, had already testified against them. And they bear false witness. They are in conspiracy with one another and they are giving and receiving bribes. This is a terrible indication of the state of the Sanhedrin.
So with that in mind, we're going to now return to this talk of authority and where the gospel is going. We see that the Jews wish to put an end to this message from even getting off the ground, but God be praised, his grace is stronger. So Jesus begins to give a mission. He commissions the disciples. When you hear the great commission, it means you're being invited to go on mission. Co means with. Go on mission with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has a mission. He has a goal. His work has been completed, but it is still going on. And so we're invited to partake in that mission. So Jesus is commissioning the disciples. But before we talk about that, I want to ask you a question. This is rhetorical. You don't have to answer it out loud. Um, in fact, you probably even couldn't give a succinct answer out loud. But what is the difference between power and authority? Just think about that while we talk for a second. What's the difference between power and authority? Authority is often understood to be the right to do something, and power is the ability to do something, yes? So, so understand that power does not mean authority. We all know of people who lie, cheat, steal, break into things. And that, that power which they wield, that violence which they use, is, it doesn't come from authority, and it doesn't cause authority. Amen? The power that you wield does not create authority. If you go in and try to just take over an environment, you walk into a room and try to capitalize the conversation and monopolize it, that doesn't mean you were right in doing so. You're wielding that power, but you don't have the authority to. Okay? So power and authority are not causally linked, but rather authority creates a causal link of power. And likewise, power must be done under authority. Power outside of authority is wrong. Authority without power is vapid and, and pointless. And so here, authority should relate to power, but power does not cause authority to, to take place. I want you to fully understand what that means. Meditate on that while we're going through these verses. So Jesus, in commissioning the disciples, he gives us a bedrock foundation. Without this foundation, things will fall apart. I was talking with my neighbor yesterday. I have a neighbor named Norb, and he's a great guy. I love Norb. He has this amazing uh, patio and brickwork that is in his yard, and I do not have this. <clears throat> so I was asking Norb, you know, how did this happen? Who Did you pay somebody or did you do it yourself? Turns out he paid somebody. But one of the things that Norb stressed, and I, you know, because I kind of asked him, I was trying to get him to go here uh, so that I would have a good sermon illustration, was... <laughs> that before they put in the patio stones, the walkway between his backyard and his garage, we have detached garages in Dayton. A lot of times you have attached garages, which are nice, but I like them being separate. And so there's, there's a walkway. And, and the chief thing that he emphasized after my prodding was that they had to dig down deep into the ground. They didn't just take bricks and put them on top of the grass and hope that that would be, you know, stable, but rather they dug down far below where the bricks would be set, and then they put in sand and gravel to be a foundation so that years later the bricks don't move. Have you ever seen a brick walkway, how there's like algae and gross stuff growing in the cracks, grass starts to come up? The reason that is is because no one put down a barrier underneath the walkway. They just dug enough for the bricks. You have to dig way below the bricks, now, granted, you can build a walkway without building a foundation, but it won't last long. It might look nice for one or two years. Norb said his walkway has been there for eight, 
and it looks flawless. It looks like the day they put it in because they built a good foundation. Without a bedrock foundation, you certainly can build, but it's foolish to do so. So Jesus Christ, in saying that all authority has been given to him, gives us a foundation on which to build. And if you are building your life, spiritually speaking, your own life or your ministry, the way that you relate to others and encourage others, on anything other than the foundation of Jesus having all authority, absolute and total authority, then you are going to uh, have a structure which will fall apart. It will fall apart and it will come crashing down. Jesus gives us this bedrock of understanding. Without this understanding, we should not even do anything at all, but rather wait until that understanding is made plain. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Remember earlier when I said there's two places where the word all is important today, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that all, all the families of the earth is necessitated for necessarily causes or needs or requires this all. That is without all authority, you cannot touch all the families of the earth, all nations of the earth. So the question that I would like to ask you is, is there any authority that exists in the world in spiritual or, or natural ways that does not belong to Jesus Christ? He says, on heaven, in heaven, and on earth. So all authority means all. That means that the devil does not have any authority at all. The devil does not have any authority, and that comes as a shock to most Christians who've been taught to wage war and do spiritual warfare and such. But earlier, I said there's a difference between power and authority. The devil has no authority. Jesus Christ, as, as the epistles of the New Testament say over and over again, defeated not only the powers, but also the principalities, those rulers in heavenly places which we still do war with, but they don't have any authority to be there. They are still there as the gospel is moving through history and touching every aspect of culture and society, but those powers are there without authority. They're there with power, but not authority. And so Jesus not only defeated the powers, but also the existential reality of death, which he triumphed over in the grave, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians. And so Jesus defeats the devil and all fallen angels and all spiritual powers, and they have no authority at all. That means you do not have to let yourself be tormented by demonic spirits. You don't have to permit demonic activity in situations. Deception isn't allowed to be permitted in your relationships, in your environment, in the way that you're going about your mission. There is no authority that they have. There's no authority outside of the all authority which has been given to Jesus Christ. Why was all authority given to Jesus Christ? So that his disciples would go on the mission of touching all the nations, all the families of the earth. The only enemy that has influence is an enemy that is not challenged. When a, when a power is in a land or a place, when a power is, is wielding power, it's, it's there, that doesn't mean it has the right to be there. And the only way it is permitted is if that authority is not wielded and enforced. You see this all the time in various environments, whether it's policing or war or what have you, when an authority with power shows up, a power without authority has to flee. And so on this understanding and basis alone, are we able to go on the mission of Christ? If you do not have that understanding, wait to go on the mission until you're radically convinced that Jesus wasn't exaggerating when he said all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. 
There is no power that has authority other than Jesus Christ. The only power which has authority is a person. He's sitting on a throne and he's calling us to go with his spirit and grace to take his word to the ends of the earth, to bless them. So that's what we're called to do as Christians. And until we get that understanding, we should not go. Because Jesus says, go therefore, on the basis of the revelation that all authority has been given to him, then you go. The, the Great Commission does not start with go into all the world. It, start, it starts with all authority has been given to me. And so Christ commands us to go and disciple the nations. This is not to preach to all nations. This is to disciple all nations. I've heard, I've, I, I am not trying to belittle, but I have heard people say, well, as long as we just give a gospel presentation to every unreached people group, then the end will come and Jesus will return to a victorious church and it'll be great. No, Jesus did not say give a gospel call. He didn't say give an altar call. He said disciple. And I don't know if you've had any troubles in your discipling, but it takes a while to be discipled. And to disciple the nations is a much bigger view than a simple gospel presentation and altar call with decision cards. It means to bring them into the life of God. And so this is a call to disciple the nations. Now, the way that we disciple is twofold. Jesus says, disciple all the nations, and then he uses these ing verbs baptizing and teaching. And so this baptizing and teaching are the way that we disciple the nations. He says, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. To baptize something uh, is to, to be surrounded with. It's to be enveloped by. It's to be uh, covered with. And so to baptize someone or, or the nation in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, it doesn't mean that you have to water baptize every single person in the nation in that formula. It includes water baptism and the baptism in the Holy Spirit. It surely includes that because Jesus uses his words carefully. And so the baptism in the name of the, of the Godhead, of this Trinitarian view of the deity, this is a true reality. It certainly includes water baptism and baptism in the Spirit, but it means more than that. It means to envelop the nation in the life of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And this is absolutely in view and harmonious with all the rest of the New Testament descriptions of baptism. Baptism isn't just a symbol. It's not just a ceremony. It's being brought into a way of life. And this is exactly what Paul teaches over and over again. In Galatians 3.27, he says, For as many of you who have been baptized in Christ have put on Christ. Think about putting on a jacket. You put it on. It surrounds you. So what Paul is saying is that your water baptism was an entrance into a life where you put on Christ, where Christ becomes your seal, your coat, the way that you are presented to the world. It defines your reality. So it's not just a symbol. It's not just this thing that we do because Christ told us to, and it's disconnected from any sort of reality. He's saying, bring the nations into the life of God bring them into the life of God. And to baptize the nations into this divine Trinitarian life is to bring them into a community of love, understood with authority. That is the Father, Jesus says, the Father is greater than I. And so there is authority and submission even within the Godhead. And that defines and sets the pattern for all of community, all of life, all of family. 
This authority and submission, harmony and peace, which defines the life of God, is supposed to become the life of the nations which are being discipled. And this baptizing in the name, in essence, is to experience and know the adoption that it comes from the Father, the forgiveness which was purchased for you by the Son, and the harmony, community, fellowship, and empowering grace of the Spirit in every area of your life. That is the goal of Christian discipleship. It is not that you would just have a blessed life, a better marriage, better kids as you're raising them. That's not the goal. It's that every aspect, every element of your life would be enveloped by the Trinity, by this radical understanding of a God who loves and gives himself for us. And so that's what it means to baptize in the name. Of course, it means to water baptize, to pray for people to be baptized in the Spirit. It includes that, but that's just the core of a much larger idea. So that's one way that we disciple the nations, baptizing them, and then also teaching That's the other element that Jesus says. The Christian life is not going to look any way that you want. If the Christian life did look any way that you want, you wouldn't wouldn't need to be told anything. But matter of fact, the scriptures over and over again give indications of how you are to live. And Jesus plainly shows that this will be part of the disciples' ministry. He says, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And so it behooves you and it's your now it's your mission as a believer to go on a search to understand what Jesus Christ means when he says all that i commanded you it was alluded to earlier in the sunday school hour but when you when you're beginning to think about what Jesus Christ has commanded the disciples you have to do it in a pattern that Jesus set and over and over again Jesus upholds the law of god in the in the gospels as being more intensely applicable to your emotional life than a plain, literal understanding of the words of the law. That is, he says, you've heard that it's written, do not commit adultery. But I say to you that if you even lust in your heart. So what we see here is that Jesus, his understanding of the law is much deeper than a plain reading of the literal meaning of the words. I don't have to be, understanding that rightly, I don't have to be going around and chasing down my neighbor's oxes as they go off into a pit, mainly because I don't have any neighbors who have ox. But what it means is I must be concerned with my neighbor's things and repair them when I see them going astray, breaking down. I must warn my neighbor. That's what it means to understand the law of God as interpreted by Jesus Christ. And so we know plainly that the ceremonial system of, of sacrifices has been set aside. That is the book of Hebrews does not remain or does, is not affected by this understanding of the law being enforced, but rather that the teachings which Jesus Christ commands is an understanding of the law and applying of the law, which was the original goal of the gospel. Now that may sound weird, but what I am not saying is that you perform the law unto righteousness, that you do the works of the law to become righteous, but rather now that you have been made righteous, you can now do the law by the Spirit of God, both understanding the law and also accomplishing it. And that was the purpose of the atonement, as Paul teaches us in Romans 8, 3 through 4. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. How did he do this? Paul then answers that question. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin as an atonement, he condemned sin in the flesh. What it means to condemn sin in the flesh is both that the law itself testified against the power of the flesh, 
That is, man in his own way of thinking could not do the works of the law, but also that in the fleshy body of Christ, God demonstrated sin as sin because it took the death of a human being, a holy human being. Verse four, why was all of this done? It was done with a purpose in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. The law has not passed away, brothers and sisters. The ceremonial system has been set aside. The exclusions which divided Israel from all of the Gentiles have been done away with. There is no longer Gentile or Jew, but one in Christ. But the moral application of the law is still in force. It does not mean that you've been justified by faith. The book of Galatians plainly teaches that the law is not set aside, but rather we are to do the works of the law by following the spirit. And that's what Romans plainly teaches over and over again. So when Jesus says to teach all that he commanded, and we see Jesus commanding deeper application than the plain reading of the law, that means we have to go on a mission searching through the scriptures to see how we are to understand these things today. That's a great calling. That's a high calling. And so Jesus says, baptize and to teach. And then he promises a great promise. Now, admittedly, without understanding the high calling of these two ideas to bring the nations, all the families into the life of God, and also to apply the law, righteously understanding it by the power of the Holy Spirit to all of life, those two high callings are, are necessary to cause us to understand his promise to be sweet with seeing those high callings of those obstacles, things that seem impossible to do on our own power, Jesus provides a great grace of assurance. And this is true to this day. He says that he will remain present fully with us by the Spirit and that he will be with us until the end of the age. Guess what? The end of the age has not happened yet. The end of one age happened, which was alluded to earlier, but the end of the ages has not taken place and Jesus is present. One of the things that's hard to get your mind around is that Jesus Christ's presence, though mediated by the Holy Spirit, is not, it's not a token or a triviality. It's not lessened that it's mediated by the Holy Spirit, but rather it's magnified because Jesus in his body, he retains his physical frame, cannot be everywhere at once, but by the Holy Spirit of God, he is present in all the churches those who are true to his word, those who are true churches. And so Jesus here is saying, I am going to be with you until the end of the age. And this promise is not just for the disciples, but rather for those who go on mission, for those who enter into the labor. When Jesus was commissioning his disciples, he said, others have labored and you are now entering into that labor. Brothers and sisters, you and I are given the exact same call that we were not there on this day to go into all the world and to baptize, bring the nations into the life of God and to teach everything that he observed. Therefore, we must be convinced not only of his authority, but also of his presence. Remember, we said that power unchallenged by authority with power can remain. Therefore, we must see that authority be with us. That authority with us causes us to not tremble nor fear in the light of other power, demonic powers, circumstances, trials, but rather to remain confident and to stand. His presence, though mediated by the Spirit, is sweet and precious, and it's real. It's not abstract. It's not, it's not lessened by the fact that it's mediated by the Spirit, but rather it's glorified. Christ has promised to go on mission with us, to work alongside of us, confirming his word. And this is the great calling that we have as believers. It sounds like a mighty calling, but there is mighty, mighty grace 
to go with it. And with that, we're going to close. Father, we thank you for your word. We do ask you that you would convince us of your right calling to baptize the nations, to teach the nations. We ask you, God, that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and understanding, that we would be able to comprehend all of the mighty grace, the mighty uh, providence that you have set aside for us. Lord, we pray that we would be fully convinced that there is no authority other than Jesus Christ, that there is no power which could, could touch us, but rather, Lord, that we would be uh, fully strengthened with your, your understanding that you are present, not only in this meal that we are about to take, but also, Lord, every aspect of our lives. Lord, we do ask that you would begin to re- renew our minds that you would renew the spirit of our minds by your Holy Spirit, that we would begin to reassess areas of our life that are not under your lordship, that we would begin to be able to understand your word as it applies to how we are to live. Lord, we pray that we would see you defeating death on our behalf, that we would celebrate Easter in a right way. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.